Hello and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. This is the 24th episode of the show. I'm your host as always, Liam Edwards, and I thank you for once again joining me to send an unsuspecting guest to a virtual deserted island, where they can only play eight games of their choosing for the rest of their days. Joining me this week is an incredibly special guest, a guest whose contributions to video games media are up there as some of the most important. He's a graduate of the Sofia University in Tokyo and originally from Germany. He now lives in California where he's the general manager of one of the world's largest game sites, IGN. But before IGN, he was known for running a Nintendo 64 dedicated website, Nintendo64.com, as well as a Nintendo fan site, Nintendojo. You might know him now though as one piece of the Triforce that makes up IGN's excellent Nintendo voice chat. Alongside hosts Jose Otero and Brian Altano, my guest brings you all the weekly news and expert opinions on everything Nintendo. It's an actual podcast favourite of mine that I've been listening to for many years, so I'm very excited to say that my guest this week is one of IGN's founders, Mr. Per Schneider. Guten Tag, Per. Hey, how are you doing, Liam? Good to I, talk to you. I'm very good. Thank you for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on today. How, how is your day going so far? Good so far. We just did, uh, we, we ran a little, a little event last night, a, a live edition of NVC here in our offices where we invited 300 fans into our kitchen, basically, and uh, <laughs> a live podcast with them. And then now we're already packing up our equipment again for San Diego Comic-Con. And then, of course, there's Gamescom and it never ends. Yes. I was actually going to say, do you get to go to Gamescom? Is that something you sort of put in the calendar as I'm going back to Germany for, I'll do I this th- event? Yeah, it didn't go last year, but I, I'm going this year for sure. Oh, that's um, I mean, good. it's such a it's such an awesome event. It's just crazy, you know, 250,000 people um, descend on these games in, in a pretty small town, right? Like, I mean, not town, but Cologne is not a, you know, metropolis. Like, Cologne is, Cologne is like a street. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, the, the population grows by like a, a quarter, I think, whenever Gamescom happens. It's 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 great if you've never been to Gamescom. This this amazing thing. I don't know where the press room is now, but um, where the press room was before, you could see all the the opening of the doors in the morning and see everyone run in, and it would be this huge stampede of people. So many people. It's yeah, it's crazy. like that scene from Lion King. It's, a, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's exactly like that. <laughs> and yeah, as you said, Cologne is a is a very small place actually. From what I remember from my my taxi ride from the hotel is a long string of like kebab shops so many kebab <laughs> shops <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's not one of our biggest cities i was born in cologne but you know i've been living abroad in the united ah, states okay. for years so cologne is actually my uh, my my birth town oh that's that makes games come all the more special then <laughs> well it's funny because i was going to ask you actually um obviously you are the general manager of IGN, one of the biggest video game websites in the world. Um, but you've had like many different roles at IGN. You've been its editor-in-chief, vi- uh, vice president of like content publishing. And um, I was going to ask you, how has your day-to-day role changed now? And what, what is it that you do more now? Well, it's, I mean, it's changed significantly since the beginning, right? I, I joined for a pretty straightforward job back in the 90s, and that was to, you know, to put together a daily video game magazine. And, you know, you do so basically every 24 hours because 
back in the 90s, you didn't publish around the clock. And that, that's kind of something that we, we pioneered, the you know, frequent updates. And you know, now IGN is updated on weekends and at night. We have folks in the UK and Australia who, who handle the, the late publishers. So yeah, um, yeah it's, it's changed a lot. I mean, I, I just, before I just looked at you know, the games that were coming out, scheduling to get reviews done, writing uh, opinion pieces, getting the news done, um, working with, with publishers, you know, getting on the phone a lot. Um, over the years, I've taken on much more responsibility over kind of, you know, the, the, not just the, the editorial product, but the actual, you know, web product as well, you, you know, so how the site is organized, how it's run, you know, what, to you know the the engineers that we have on board and you know as general manager obviously also the financials making sure that we run a, a profitable business and yeah you know i had some some rocky times back in the past where you know we were part of the dot-com boom but also of the dot-com bubble bursting you know where everybody we were just spending way too much money and um you know when when i took over at a good time when all that was over, thankfully, you know, <laughs> maintain profitability and, and grow the business. So it, it's been really gratifying and exciting. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited about my job now. <laughs> That's excellent. Um, I was going to ask you, obviously, probably explain this many, many times, but what was this sort of transition period? Where were you, where were you at when this idea of IGM was sort of first planted? And then what was the transition like to this new like venture almost yeah and i think the the idea for ign precedes me in that you know ign the i stands for imagine and that's because you know there was a a, a publication that came originally from the uk where it was called future um to the us called imagine uh, it was imagine media publishing uh you know imagine media uh, entertainment uh later on run by chris anderson who uh, you know was the is the chairman, um, you know, he's, he's still out there uh, very actively um, in the kind of the publishing realm. And he, uh, he, him and Jonathan Simpson Bint, who is now over at Twitch, just had the idea of taking some of the magazines and really turning them into, into web properties. Um, and so I joined when really the, when we were jointly forming the idea of creating a brand around that, that's not just a kind of an affiliate or ad network, you know, what the original idea, idea for IGN, IGN, the Imagine Games Network was to be, you know, there's this giant network of websites, both owned and operated and fan sites. You know, if you remember back in the days, like Game Facts, Game Sages, they were all part of it. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we turned it into a brand um, and kind of, launched these these websites and then kind of stitched them together to become IGN so that it's not just a partisan voice for, you know, N64 or PlayStation, but actually this homepage for gamers and, you know, quickly also entertainment topics. You know, so we started covering movies and comics back in the, the late 90s. Yeah, because it, it, from what I remember, it was sort of spread out. You, you had like GameSpy, GameFAQs, Rotten Tomatoes and all these almost sort of split outlets that now sort of all together make up what IGN covers games, comics, movies, TV yeah. shows, all that kind of stuff. That was later. So, you know, obviously when the, when, when we spun out the business as a standalone from Imagine Media and so, you know, Imagine Media is actually now future. They, they're called future again in the U S um, they still run games radar, uh, for example. Yeah. PC, PC gamer and so 
We, yeah. we spun out of that company to become a, a standalone web property, obviously with the backing of Imagine Media and, and you know, with, with, with their help. Um, but then we're independent as IGN Entertainment. And so as part of that, there were some acquisitions such as GameSpy and GameSpy Technologies, uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, you know, the company wanted to diversify beyond the, um, the kind of the, game, the core games uh, audience. And, you know, over the years, we just, we basically said, you know what, no, it's, it's, it's got to be all about the core. It's got to be about gaming um, rather than trying to service all these different entertainment audiences. And Rotten Tomatoes in particular, that was a business that was diverse, divested um, many years ago uh, and, and, and sold to, to another company um, where, you know, Rotten Tomatoes' audience was very, very different from IGN and the way they, you know, monetized was very different. And so, you know, ultimately we went back to really focusing on the on the mothership. What has it been like seeing IGN from when it first was in like started to being the huge website it is now? I mean, you the people who work for you, yeah, I kind of like the the rock stars of video games. You have you know Brian, uh, Max, and Marty, and all these incredible people who work for you who are quite prominent on like Twitter and they, they're these huge personalities. What's it been like for you? Is it kind of, because you've been there from the start, is it kind of like this yeah. little bubble that you've always been sat in just seeing well, it now and again? Feels, it doesn't feel like a big company, right? When you're in here, it's, you know, it still has that kind of tightly knit group of people who love to hang out and play games and yeah. you know go to bars together afterwards. And so we've been able to retain that. And if you go back to like 97, 98, the, that kind of personality angle was, was something that we always believed in. You know, like I was running the N64 website with Matt Casamcina and we, we were, you know, we were personalities that the audience could connect with, albeit in text form, right? Because we didn't produce videos at the time yet. It was all about the Q and A's and having the personality of the, on the page and sharing opinions and interacting with people in the forums. Um, the IGN boards were really big back then. Um, and so we kind of had that, that thread always running through IGN. Um, but obviously now it's much more visual and it's about, you know, being people being YouTube personalities and, and, and video personalities on top of that. So it's, we've really been able to retain that. I think that feel inside, I think to, to some people, you know, you have naysayers out there who see the size of IGN and the activity and the, you know, the amount of activity on the, on the website and we think, oh, it's, it's this giant corporation and they, therefore it's, um, you know, it's kind of dispassionate and not as connected to the audience. But I, I don't think, um, I don't think that's actually true. I think, you know, we've maintained the, the connection with the audience. We're very active and interacting, not just on Twitter, but on, on the IGN website and, you know, on Snapchat and everywhere we are. Yeah. Um, it's just hard to find because there's so many voices, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. There is a hell of a lot of people out there now. Um, speaking yeah. of personality then, um, most people will know you for speaking about Nintendo every week. Um, on NVC yeah. with Jose and Brian, uh, one of my favorite podcasts. I absolutely love NVC as a huge fan of Nintendo. Um, how did NVC and you come about? Obviously, NVC has been running for quite a while now. Jose being, the, I, I would say he's been the host for a, quite a while now, but he came in yeah. after. Um, how is, was MVC your idea being someone who's covered Nintendo for a very long time? Or was this just a sort of natural, oh yeah, Pear's experience with Nintendo, this makes sense? 
No, I think I think we got to give some credit to um, to OneUp.com back in the days. I think they did a really nice job figuring out how to um, how to serve an audience with audio podcasts, right? And like um, I think uh, you know we, we some of the OneUp members were you know were working at IGN, right? IGN had acquired OneUp. Um, unfortunately not in a, in a great state already on the decline at the time. Yeah. Um, and some of the, some of the folks like Jose and Marty actually came across with it. And so there's some, some credit to one up in the early days that inspired us, I think, to create things like game scoop, you know, um, and, and beyond some of the early podcasts. And when that happened and we saw an active audience, um, and, and really high participation levels, we said, all right, well, let's try this. Let's create, basically a mirror of what we did with websites back in the nineties where we create, you know, a show around each, um, each fan group. So you've got unlocked, right. Which was called three red lights back then. Uh, we had a piece <laughs> gaming a podcast. It was like a, what was it? Like AFK. We had, uh, you know, a couple of names, the PC podcast never quite worked because I think that audience is so diverse and you got to go a little, a little more narrow. And then we had a week in review with two eyes. Yeah. Cause we're snarky and clever. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and that uh, that became Nintendo Voice Chat. So, like, Matt, Casmacina, Mark Boson, Craig Harris um, were, were podcasting on the Nintendo end. And I was on some of them, but I, I really had already taken a step back from, from content creation and being an editorial voice. And quite frankly, I also wanted to let people who are creating the content every day have, you know, the lion's share of that, that exposure and that voice out there. But then when Jose came on board and took the reins with uh, NVC, Nintendo Voice Chat, um, and the or- origin of the name is is equally snarky as like three red lights. It was basically you couldn't talk to anybody on a Nintendo console because Nintendo just kind of never built voice chat into yeah. their games. Called that, called it that. That meaning is lost, th- thankfully, because you know obviously we we love Nintendo. We don't want to get off on this kind of snark foot from the beginning. But yeah, Jose basically said, hey, you know, there's this guy who used to run the N64 site back in the day, and it was a big Nintendo fan let's bring him back on and so I joined and it's been so much fun that I I make time for it every week and then greatly um, enjoy being on that show it's such a fascinating part and I feel when I listen to MVC I feel like I'm I'm listening to friends talk about Nintendo there um it feels like you three are probably there are others at IGN, but you three have all grown up like Brian playing his Game Boy and that kind of thing. Jose growing up playing Nintendo and yourself being the experience behind it, having, having covered Nintendo through all these incredibly defining ages, the Super Nintendo, the 3D uh, revolution and all that kind of stuff. It's amazing yep. to hear you guys sort of chat so naturally about Nintendo and it's really very strangely natural and something that some podcasts don't come across as yeah that's because i mean it's just an extension of what goes on in the office all day right people talk about games that way yeah you know um, and and so we basically just turn the, the the mic on and then you know jose does a really nice job kind of organizing the topics and making sure that that Brian and I don't go too crazy otherwise you got to show about <laughs> pizza before you know it and uh, yeah and, it, it's good to hear that that you think we it, it, it comes across as friends because I mean obviously we're we're diff- of different ages as well right I mean, that's I'm very true yeah five years old I'm you know I've got more than a decade on on both of those guys so 
um, and I have kids. Uh, so we've, we've tried to kind of maintain that very approachable kind of friendly, uh, friendly voice rather than being, you know, all didactic and like, you know, reading a statement to the audience. Yeah. It, it, it definitely feels like that in a way, um, as well, such as you've got all these other, uh, elements of IGN and then underneath that you have these other elements of podcasts you have all these really huge podcasts like GameScoop uh, Beyond uh, Unlocked and all these even the games uh, even the IGN UK podcast as well um, I love that so good <laughs> we've had I'm, I, I know Gav I know Gav pretty well um, <laughs> so that, uh, we've had him on this, this show before as well. So that's pretty cool. That's great. Yeah, and it's like the UK podcast. Um, it's I I keep on telling them to rebrand it because I, I don't I don't think people should like it. It shouldn't sound like it's just for a UK audience because it's so it's so universal and it's funny. And it's really yeah. thoughtful, and well done. And and depending on what crew you get, it's actually a different podcast. You know. <laughs> Comes a very different show. Yeah, um, yeah, it's really fun. I, th- I think those guys are doing a great job. Yeah, those guys. I love those guys a lot. Um, and but it seems like MVC is this. Maybe it's like you guys in a closet somewhere while all these big things are happening, and you guys are just like chatting about Nintendo away in the corner. But well, it feels like I MVC has so many, so many listeners at the same time. Yeah. I'd, I'd hope more games come out so we got some big things to talk about <laughs> and not just all the stuff that's in our closets, literally. Um, but I mean, Nintendo has such a such a wealth of games and franchises. It's just great to reminisce and, and talk about all that. But, you know, now we've got uh, Breath of the Wild on the horizon, so yes. we're all excited to talk about that. And, uh, you know, I think when the NX comes out, we'll, we'll have plenty of topics again. Yes, let's hope anyway. But... We are here to talk about games. We're here to talk about the eight games that you've chosen to take with you to a deserted island to play for the rest of your days. Um, which, yep. coming from someone like you, uh, who has been working in the video games industry for a very long time, covered hundreds and thousands of games, uh, covered Nintendo extensively, I think some people are going to be surprised how maybe... There are many, many games that aren't Nintendo-based games, which oh, yeah. surprised me, which is a terrible thing to say. <laughs> but there are many great games on there. But I, I, mean, I can throw you a curveball there. Yeah, <laughs> but I, th- I think the, the three Nintendo games, I think it's three, the, the three Nintendo games that you've chosen um, are games that you've spoken extensively on MVC for how much you adore them and love them and it's going to be great to actually hear you talk a little more in depth about why it's with those games sure. so we're going to dive yeah. into the first game which is a huge game so we're going to listen yeah. to some excellent music from this first game and then we're going to talk about it <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, Pear, so the first game for your deserted island today is a huge Nintendo EAD, Shigeru Miyamoto, Takeshi Tezuka project. It was originally concepted as Zelda 3. It changed to the Super Nintendo title, The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, released in November 1991, originally. Pear, the first game on your list today is... Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past. Why? I played it early. You played it early? Okay. Yeah, because I, I, lived, in, I lived in Japan. And uh, so I bought it back in 1990 when it came out there. Um, and I just yeah. have such fond memories of that title. And, like, you know, you already said that my list is not all Nintendo games. And I just want to clarify, like, I, I absolutely love Nintendo games. I think they just have this kind of... this especially the, the in the Super NES days, they had this approach to games that was so different and so charming and so clever. And like, they really thought a game through from the very beginning to the end. And, you know, A Link, a link to the Past, is, it's this game, it's, the visuals are so simple, but I still get choked up over the ending because they do this amazing job where they do a flyby of all the characters you encountered, you know, and some, some didn't make it right. There's that boy in the woods and like, yeah. you just get to see everything uh, once again. Um, and, and it's just, it's such a well-composed game. And so when I thought about what games would I bring to a desert Island with me, I didn't just pick my favorites because if you ask me what my favorite game of all time is, it's probably Ocarina of Time. And I'm a huge PlayStation fan too. You know, I love the Uncharted franchise. Yeah. You know, yeah. but I chose Link to the Past because it's such a pure Zelda experience. It's, you know, it's a redo of the, of the first Zelda game in a lot of ways, right? Like perspective and gameplay, big departure from Zelda 2, which was a side-scroller with a, well, a, a, a 2D game from the side yeah. perspective with yeah. jumping and all that, and, um, and RPG elements. This one was back to the action-adventure concept of the original. And it is 2D Ocarina of Time, but it's so freaking good. The music is absolutely amazing. It sounds so good. You know, the Super Famicom has a just a wonderful um, sound chip, and and it, it's such an iconic adventure game to me. And I feel like every beat of that game is right. And I could replay this game over and over. And I think I know it by heart, by the way. Like I'm kind of almost want to play blindfolded one day to see how, how far I can get with it. Um, but I. Despite that fam- familiarity, I feel like there are these little meta games in it where I, I think I could learn to speedrun this game and really figure out how to create the shortest path to victory. And, and that's why I think it's just one of those universal games that I, I would take with me. So was this, did this game come out at the time when you were at the Sofia University in Japan? Correct, yeah. And I had, um, so when I grew up, I'm a little older, right? I was born in 1971, and my first console was the Fairchild Channel F, the very first video game console that used cartridges. Um, And so I, you know, I played games throughout the Atari generation, you know, like remember when Vectrexes and all that kind of stuff came out, and then everything crashed and burned. And so I, I fell out of love with video games, you know, I kind of moved on to home computers like Commodore 64, Atari, XLs, um, played some. But when I moved to Japan, I, you know, like even before I moved, I had stopped playing games and, uh, you know, kind of ignored the NES uh, for the most part. I played the NES much later and, and didn't own one when it first came out. And so my wife, well, then girlfriend in Japan, 
um, gave me a Super Famicom for my birthday with Super Mario World. And man, I thought I was out. They pulled me back in. <laughs> and I just like, I neglected some studying in favor of playing video games. <laughs> I stood in line at launch day for Final Fantasy, you know, five and six and, 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 you know, Link to the Past was just one of those moments where I'm like, man, this is why I got back into gaming and I, I don't think I'll ever leave again. That's quite incredible considering I can't imagine how Japan was then, uh, especially with the family karma and a game like A Link to the Past coming out. I live in Japan now and yeah. gaming is just everywhere. People don't, I, I think people don't understand, especially if you come from the UK or Europe, uh, how you've got maybe the odd video game shop in your town. Yep. Um, in Japan, Almost every store is some form of video game shop. Um, you go to your local supermarket, they have games on the shelf. Next to that will be like an amusement developer or a, or a hard-off. Um, video gaming in Japan is just everywhere. And it is one of those kind of cliche things. So for, for you to have gone to Japan and to be like, no, uh, I'm done with gaming. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I find that incredibly... Uh, Strange. <laughs> it was, video games were pervasive, but not as big as they are now in Japan, right? Like you, you had to go to Akihabara for you know to buy your console games. Like you okay. know, there there your Yorubashi Kamana is around, and you you could pick up some games there, like in, in Shibuya or Shinjuku. But really, the center of of everything was Akihabara, which was. Um, there were a couple of, you know, game stores that sold the games the night before they came out. And you would line up for Final Fantasy and all those titles, yeah. and, you know. And I did that. Um, and you could trade in your games there and kind of finance the, the next games. Um, so this whole movement about no, no resale really hadn't happened yet. And, um, yeah, like, I think, I think Japan always had a, um, had a different... Um, outlook on video games and that it was actually cool to go to an arcade, right? Like you went to Shibuya with your friends and, you know, went out for some drinks and went to an izakaya and uh, afterwards yeah. you just went, you played Final Lap or Tetris on this giant projection screen, you know, with everybody watching or, or Street Fighter 2 uh, in the arcades and it was a cool thing to do. The, it still kind of is <laughs> in Japan, maybe not so much the arcades, but... Um, there are still some uh, izakayas, which is like a, basically the word for bar in, in Japan, um, that have like arcade machines or pinball machines and stuff like that. And it, it is still in part of ingrained Japanese culture. Um, I can't imagine to think of what Akihabara was like then in comparison to what it is now, uh, a, a lot more anime nobody focused. Just, nobody spoke English there except for at Laox, who uh, they focused really on, on selling to foreigners and taking stuff abroad. Yeah, it was, you know, the, when I was there, the, there was no romaji, there was no English written on the sub, subway station. Yeah. So, you know, try learning the kanji for Akihabara when you first get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, after you played A Link to the Past, um, were you thinking about covering games was this kind of like oh hey i'm in japan i'm there there is maybe a market here for someone to write about video games from japan as there is no one doing it remember 1990 the internet was not exactly a vibrant that's place. true yeah that's very true that was not 
I was not active in like BBS culture and uh, you know, like, no, I, I never, I didn't, it didn't enter my mind that I would be doing something online. I did think, you know, I read magazines like Famitsu and Dengeki um, and then, you know, certainly like EGM from the US and I thought, yeah. oh, this, this could be a cool job to do that. But I didn't take that seriously to the point where I said, hey, that's something I want to do. I, you know, I was planning to go to UC Berkeley and study journalism afterwards, which I did. Um, but I really was thinking more about documentary film and kind of like a magazine show production for, for television or working for a newspaper at the time. And so, no, I didn't, I thought, I thought about really taking what I knew about video games and the connection to culture and what's in video games and, and seeing if you could, you know, kind of peddle that to a mainstream audience, but I didn't think about that being actually my full-time job. Okay. Um, Going back a little bit, you said that you kind of skipped over the NES a little bit. So when you went into Willing to the Past, was had you played Zelda 1 and Zelda 2 and been fans of those games? Or had you kind of skipped over those games and gone straight to a Link to the Past? I went backwards. I played Link to the Past before I played Zelda 1 and 2. Ah, so that's see, very I interesting. Came, yeah, I came really fresh into Link to the Past. Like, I actually... You know, like I picked it up. It's kind of funny. I picked it up because of the cover art. I'm like, huh, all right. Well, I played other Nintendo games and I know they're really good, like made by Nintendo. I'm like, let me try this game. And then I, I bought it. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> this is like, I I was almost felt embarrassed back then for not knowing about this game. But yeah, I, I walked pretty pretty green into Japanese gaming. I played early early computer games and, you know, knew everything from like, Ultima to like the greatest like Commodore 64 hits like you know your summer games yeah and arcade games very Zerk European and, uh fantasy yeah, type very, yeah very yeah like you know I I knew composers like Hubbard who like were active on the Commodore 64 but didn't really know that much about Mario and, and that world you know yeah. outside of kind of what you what I gleaned from arcade <laughs> games and culture and stuff and so I basically rediscovered I discovered that more deeply with the Super NES for the first time and then went back to the NES games and, and played those later. That's incredible. So yeah. is it safe to say that A Link to the Past was sort of the rebirth of the spark in your head about video games? No, I think that was Mario World. Super Mario World just, you know, that was the launch title for the, the Super Famicom and uh, it shipped with it and that was that. that's really what got me back into it because I'm like, you know, I remember I remember playing great games like you know pitfall 2 that were more you know more exploration based on the the home yeah. computer the atari xl version is still the best one uh david crane's pitfall 2 um and but then i played mario i'm like oh my god what they constructed here is just like nothing like i haven't seen anything like this just the combination of of music and level design but you know ironically it's mario world is not one of my eight games that i put on the list no it is not like that to I played that game to the max and I feel like you know I'm as good as I can ever get in that type of game yeah and I like can just close my eyes and I can go through all the levels and uh, you know so I didn't put that one uh, on, on my list no um but I was going to ask you how many times have you bought a link to the past in its very uh, various uh-huh. iterations over the years Oh God! I don't even know. I even played the BS Satellaview version while I lived while I lived in Japan. Like the one that uh, went over satellite. We had yeah. uh, we had a satellite uh, connection at, at, at my home. Um, 
Yeah, I don't even know. I have I have all the versions. <laughs> I have everything. Very good. Very. It's it's amazing to think about a link to the past coming out in Japan. Um, since moving to Japan, I've been fascinated by how video game culture has changed in Japan. And we talk a lot about how video games have changed over the years in like America and, and the UK and how we've gone along with each big new console release in Japan. It's sort of changed culturally as well. Uh, obviously it's become um, a lot. I don't know that obviously the Japanese video game industry has sort of become kind of a little bit of a joke uh, with, you know, the stuff that's happened with Capcom and Konami and all these big, huge nineties and early two thousands, uh, game makers and now being <laughs> releasing some, maybe some part titles and Nintendo also kind of fall into that bracket as well. Um, with stuff like the Wii U and the change with the Wii, um, so it's very interesting to see how Japanese gaming was in the very early 90s when you were there compared to what it is like now. Yeah, they, I mean, they, they, Japan made the best games. There was no question about that, right? Yeah. In that it, 16-bit era, nobody came close. And, you know, even when you went into the, the PlayStation era, I mean, let's not forget, like, how special games like Gran Turismo were. Like, nobody had thought about creating a game that has these real representations of cars like that and to that extent. And, uh, you know, or games like Metal Gear, like the detail of what you could do in that game. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's a pity that some of the early devs have fallen from grace, but I think they'll come back and, you know, play behavior in Japan has changed. You know, yeah. the, the market has really, really taken over. And it, it, it's a pity that we've lost some some great studios. But, you know, look at the last Metal Gear game. That was a fantastic game. It took a little bit more of a Western approach to Metal Gear, but it was, you know, like few people can pull that off and few teams can pull that off. And I think the same is going to be true when we see Breath of the Wild from from Nintendo. Is that sort of the future you see for like Japanese games? Then obviously we're even seeing a company like Nintendo, which has strictly done their own thing, and they still are with with Breath of the Wild being a very much a Nintendo game. Um, but it does seem like more Western influences are be, are influencing Japanese games instead of vice versa, like it has been for many years. Yeah, and but culture has also become so so melded, right? Like, I mean, think about Street Fighter. Uh, you wouldn't consider that game like a fighting game to be inherently Japanese, but you know, Japan wrote the template for how these games need to feel and like how these combos are pulled off. And so, I think that's still very pervasive. That that kind of early game design concept, or you know, we often say the castle, the the, the sorry, the Metroidvania concept of exploration and item gates, right? Where yeah. hey, there's a door, you know, in, in Metroid, it's a color. In Zelda games, it has a target or a hookshot target higher up or something like japan created that concept of creating a narrative through items that let you access new areas and like that's not going away and even though we may consider something like that like you know a, a, a game to be a western game nowadays like a lot of the elements came from early japanese games yeah so yeah. Before we move on to A Link to the Past, obviously it's uh, SGDQ happening right now and all the speedrunners. Um, do you reckon after a period of time on the deserted island you'd be ready to take on the best with speedrunning A Link to the Past? No, I think it's a little bit... I think when you get older, your reflexes slow down. And, you know, I, I, I don't think that 
even with desert island training, I could take down the the best of the best. But you know, I I think it can I can do better than I can do now. And I usually play games. I I take it slowly. I don't you know like I'm still playing The Witcher Three, for example, and it's because I get sidetracked by all the other things you can do and ignore the main storylines. Yeah, and, you know, and that's kind of my approach to gaming. But I feel like with Link to the Past. Um, you know, I, I, I like the idea of going back and just kind of creating the, the fast um, speedrun type meta game out of it. Excellent. Well, we're going to move on now from A Link to the Past, which is a great start, um, to listen to some music from the next game. And we're going to talk about it. Very different, very polarizing game, a game I actually worked on. So this will be very interesting. Nice. So before we move on to your second game, we're going to talk about the actual deserted place that you are trapped in. Um, as per the show, we, we don't want you to be too uncomfortable. Uh, we're not trying to make you have to survive difficultly or anything. We want you to be able to at least play the eight games that, <laughs> that you've chosen. Um, so we allow the guest to choose the virtual deserted place. So it has to be a place from video games. Uh, no NPC humanoid type characters that you could interact with in any way. Um, but there could be like monsters, uh, if they're semi sentient, not intelligent. Um, so is there a place that instantly comes to your head that you wouldn't mind being deserted in? <laughs> so we, uh, for example, we've had, we've obviously had places like Outset Island from the Wind Waker. We've had Koholi Island from Link's Awakening. We've had the Island of the Witness. We've had uh, the World of Japan from Okami. We've had many, many well, different the, places. The Island of the, of the Witness would drive you insane because you'd be asking why. Um, no, it's got to <laughs> be the Mushroom Kingdom. Come on. Like I, the thing I love so much about, you know, um, about you know the world of Super Mario World, for example, which is an island. Remember the title screen; it rotates. Yep. Um, is that it's a microcosm of everything that you can expect in the world. So you've got your snow level, you've got your water level, you've got you know, like I feel like we've got the variety in that in that landscape. Plus, their fruit on the trees. So, what more do you need? That's true. So, it, I'm safe to say it's the Mushroom Kingdom still. Yeah. Yeah, so the Mushroom Kingdom for Super Mario World, that's not something that's I don't think anyone's ever thought of or even crossed my own mind. There you go. Would you would you be okay being flipped 2D? No, I think that simplifies some things. <laughs> I'll say that you can move into the Yoshi's house and like you don't actually uh 
uh, okay, I, I don't get to interact, but maybe Yoshis are around. I don't have to walk myself. Do we do we count Yoshi as semi-intelligent? Maybe like dolphin level ability, or more? No, intelligent? I think more like a car. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll allow you. We'll allow you to ride around on Yoshi then. <laughs> awesome. And there's some levels. There's some areas of levels you can't finish without Yoshi. So you got you got to. Also, Super Mario World has some of the best music ever created for video games, so we can also have that play in the background. Exactly. There you go. Now you're getting it. <laughs> Excellent. So we're going to talk about your second game now, which is a, a game uh, people who have listened to the show before will know. Uh, you do not. I worked on this game. It's the open-world action-adventure video game developed by Rockstar um, that released in September of 2013 for the the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 with later releases for PC, PlayStation 4, and Xbox One. It's the huge open-world mania that is Grand Theft Auto V. Pear, I was very surprised to see this on your list. So please wow. tell me why GTA V is... <laughs> I don't think it's a game I've heard you talk about, so that, that might be why. Well, that's because I was on the wrong podcast, right? It never came out on an internet platform. <laughs> that's very uh, true. No, I'm, really, I'm, I'm very passionate about what Rockstar has achieved. And like, you know, I could have easily put Red Dead Redemption on there. I'm a huge Western movie fan and I love that world too. But the reason why I chose GTA is because, you know, if you're on a desert island, you want games that offer you a lot of variety and a lot of things to do. And GTA, you know, talk about a meta game. You can do what you want in that world and you can, you can, you can mess with the physics and the and the world and the NPCs in really interesting ways. I mean, you you can go exploring in your submarine and you can try to do things with a submarine that the developers did not um, did not want you to do, or you can do things with cars and get into areas you're not supposed to access. And I'm just I have tremendous respect for the storytelling of that game. Unlike a lot of games where you get these kind of times where you feel like the, the the narrative lags or, you know, you kind of get bored with things. GTA mixes it up by having the three characters set up. Um, one character kind of looks like me, so that's a good one. Um, <laughs> but you, know, you, you, can switch, you can switch between the characters, which, like, in Red Dead Redemption, you've got this part in Mexico where, like, you really have to motivate yourself to get over that hump in the story. And GTA just doesn't have that. It's just... You play one storyline, you go to a different one, you go and, and you are given license to be crazy. Like I don't think many people think about how brilliant the addition of Trevor was, who's a complete nutcase and basically encourages you to play the way that, you know, modern society tells you not to play the game, to be a total jerk yeah, and it- jump your like on top of a moving train, right? Yeah, Trevor was kind of, he's definitely this kind of, in GTA, you've always been allowed to kill people, steal things, and all these kind of things. But the characters have always sort of been semi on the on the safe side. Like Michael being this kind of like mob boss, Trevor at Franklin being like you know a, a traditional gangster. But then Trevor is like the side of players who are like, I just want to steal a tank and and go on a rampage type type thing. Yeah, so they brilliantly give you license to be a jerk. You know, and like I'm usually the guy who plays good, right? Like when I'm playing something like Mass Effect or you know Witcher or something, like I don't, I don't go out of my way to, to pick the fight. <laughs> don't like to the rock the boat. <laughs> Even if there's not an element that tracks your karma, like I still, I still feel bad, honestly. And but sometimes you just want to be a jerk, and this game just lets you do it, and it fits the story, and it it gives you the license to do it, and like. 
you know, there's just so much good stuff in Grand Theft Auto, like just running those those silly plane missions where you or, or you know helicopter stuff like just the joy of flying around in this world and then you know it has a multiplayer mode where you can do all that stuff with friends on top of it and that's honestly something i haven't explored that much simply it's a time question for me where you know i know the game elements are are there it's just the time on my end aren't there to really explore um, that mode and so i'd, I'd love to uh, have the time and just kind of delve deeper there it's very interesting you say that actually i think it was announced yesterday or released that they had a new dlc pack for the gta online um yeah. it's called cunning Stunt. stunts of course in yep. a very clever rockstar way and uh it yep. makes the game a lot more like track mania with all these crazy tracks um i actually worked on gta online for most of my time at rockstar and all of the dlc packs uh that had come out up until maybe the past two or three so i'm very interesting myself to see what this new dlc is like for gta online uh yeah look i mean I'm I'm always excited when when I love a game and I feel like I've done everything for it and like it doesn't happen that often again like the time issue is 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 always there like Assassin's Creed uh, you know Black Flag I did everything I could do in that game except for multiplayer and so I'm happy when there's DLC and I can delve back in uh, and I feel the same way about GTA. Um, I haven't I haven't played the DLC yet, so I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what, what what's going on there. Excellent. What, what, so, what is the kind of stuff that you generally do in a GTA that you find super like like a lot of enjoyment? Like a lot of people like racing, a lot of people like doing like the heists and all that kind of thing. What, what is like? What does Pear do when he turns on GTA? The heists are absolutely brilliant, right? The heists are amazing. I feel like the I, I'm a huge Pilot Wings and Sky Odyssey fan. And, okay, you know, yeah. That make you feel like you're you're really in an airplane, and so that you know, just the first of all, wreaking havoc in a tank is always great, right? Like you're driving all these cars, and then you, have to build, <laughs> you get heavy machinery like that. I love doing that, but um, I really, really loved all the flying stuff. And like once you start flying, then you try to uh, then you try to fly under bridges, or you try to do stuff that. Uh, you know, like steal a jumbo jet from an airport and see how long you can make it before they catch you. And um, that, that's kind of stuff. I love messing around in that world. Uh, but what attracted me in the first place was the story and the way they, they tell this great kind of almost Tarantino-ish story and you know, yeah. like the mob boss. I, I love that story thread and the way they, you know, they, it, it plays out. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> I've always wondered, um, and this is more of a behind-the-curtain type thing, how is it that being, you know, the person behind IGN and that kind of, how is it dealing with companies like Rockstar that are notoriously quiet or notoriously not wanting to talk? How is it dealing with them and trying to get information from them or trying to get... uh, I remember when I was working... um, at Rockstar, it was the uh, IGN. Uh, we had a playtest with IGN once, and we—I think it was Marty, and I think it was uh, uh, someone else—and we were playing GTA Online with them, and it became a IGN exclusive. How is it trying to organize those things with a company like Rockstar? 
Yeah, you know, as you said, there there are some companies that are a little bit more secretive, right? Or you know, um, I think in some cases maybe they were burned by the press in the past, and so they're more cautious too uh, when when they're talking about their products. And uh, you know, certainly Rockstar is one of them. Um, it can be really frustrating because, like, you know, those companies are usually the ones that make the most exciting games that we want to talk more about. But you know, <laughs> our relationship with with Rockstar has has always been very, very good. And um, you know, I, I think we benefited from getting uh, getting access at times where you know others may not have been as lucky. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's. They make you work for your information, but in the end, uh, you know, we've always managed to get good stuff. Do you get tempted by uh, when a game like GTA comes out and you see sort of all the hype around it? Do do you want to get involved with all the podcasts and be like, I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it. Kind of like, I want to throw in my two cents about a game like this. I, I do. I do. You know, with Uncharted, for example... You know, I love those games. I would have loved to talk about it more. Or, um, you know, Inside, uh, this this little indie game that just came out. Like, I am so excited about that game and wanted to share my opinion more. But then, then it becomes kind of like a time and availability question, too. And, yeah. you know, uh, so, yeah, there, there, there are definitely times where I, I, I would love to talk more about those topics. It's just, you know, it's hard to make that happen. So GTA 5 is sort of a safe bet for the deserted island then that allows you all this freedom to play for, like, because some of the games you've chosen are very static, um, like uh, A Link to the Past, uh, which you said you would play and get faster at, but it does have this very definite start and finish. So is GTA this more of, I'm going to be here for a long time, Let's, let's do many different things. Yeah, and I'm a huge fan of open world games, as I said, right? Like Witcher, Fallout, Elder Scrolls, I, Assassin's Creed, like, the, you know, certain ones in the series. I'm, I'm a big fan of that kind of, you know, exploration and, and kind of messing with physics, especially physics-based game systems like that. And so this one, I feel like this one really pulls things off. I, Metal Gear is another one, right? really enjoyed that game, but Metal Gear doesn't tell as many interesting stories as this game does in that world. Story-wise, I'd say Witcher is probably the best because a Witcher side story is usually better than another game's main story, you know. But um, yeah, but this also has the characters and the you know just kind of like the the physics systems to boot that really make it an endless experience for me. So we should I should have really asked this in the previous segment about Zelda then, but obviously with Breath of the Wild becoming this open world experience. Does that excite you a lot, especially now you've played it and you've spoken with Bill uh, at Nintendo about this open world element? As someone who is a fan of open world games, are you cautious about Breath of the Wild or are you like, no, let's let's just go full open world and let's see what happens? No, I'm not cautious about it because, you know, I've I've uh, I've I've played it and I like what I saw. Um, What, you know. With Zelda, it's like I love I love the Zelda formula, and even though you know once in a while it kind of there's it it gets a little stale when Nintendo plays it too safe, right? Like as I mentioned earlier, like you have 
you see a hook shot, shot target. Now, after playing this franchise for more than 20 years, I'm like, oh, I totally get what that is. And so I like that there is more of a departure from that and that we get something new and that it's going to make me feel like playing a Zelda game for the first time again because I don't know what the iconography means or I don't know how to overcome a certain obstacle. I yeah. like that part of it. Okay. My, the, the cautious element comes in in that... I think, you know, Zelda games have just the best puzzle dungeons out of any game series. And I'm worried that most of the, the temples in this game are rather small and don't have this kind of this great narrative woven through the exploration of the temple and like facing against the bosses. Something very pure about that, I think, uh, how the Zelda games have done it. But, so, man, from what I played just that short time, you kind of get that when you're exploring the open world and you're trying to figure out how to take out, bo- uh, like, just regular characters and how okay. to approach the situation. Yeah, because because Breath of the Wild has uh, those. They're kind of almost like the temples that give you powers, almost like getting like a dragon shout in Skyrim, where you go through like a small, uh, not a dungeon, but a small like cave, and then you get a dragon shout at the end of it. Yeah. The ones we've seen so far, they're like the small little Sheikah shrines. I I don't know the exact name. Um, yeah, and and you get like. Yeah. Sorry, say again, Pear. No, you've got the you've got the sh- the shrines that you're exploring throughout the game, and there are over a hundred in that game, right? Yeah, and that excites me because I've 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 tried out some of them, and they're kind of small puzzle areas Very that small. have that of the bigger temples, but they don't have this kind of like, all right, you go over here and do this, and then you go back there. They don't have this kind of more complex map exploration system that that you're accustomed to from the older games. So I'm hoping, though, that that is still in there. And if it is, man, what a treat, because they they finally made the overworld more exciting and more you know more of a playground the way like a mario 64 uh, game was a playground so it's going to kind of be like ocarina of time where you have all these temples in these certain places but the actual hyrule field bit actually worthwhile (laughs) exciting to play yeah Yeah, like hyrule in Ocarina of Time, like you had the, you know, the the large open area was very boring. You know, had some, yeah. some p like propeller guys flying around, or you could, uh, you know, jump the fence and and find, uh, you know, you like you, you'd explore the the lake, Ilia area, or the, the the farm. But overall, there wasn't a lot to do. Whereas this game. There's a lot to do, a lot to discover, and I'm curious to see if there are other elements, you know, where you you can find stuff that you that aren't readily apparent yet. Excellent. Well, we're going to move on to your next game now, then. Uh, We're going to listen to some very interesting music, and we're going to dive right into your oldest game on this list. Okay, so Pat, the next game you've chosen for your island is an actually it's an arcade game um, from Midway, and it's a spin-off of the very popular Pac-Man. It's Mrs. Pac-Man. Yeah, Miss Pac-Man. It's uh, you know goes back to my early days as a as a gamer or as a kid, rather playing games while I lived in Germany, and you know I, I discovered games like Space Invaders, Dig Dug. Donkey Kong, Pac-Man, but also Ms. Pac-Man didn't realize its brilliance until until much later. 
And, uh, you know, I have, uh, I don't have a Ms. Pac-Man arcade machine in my house. I have a Super Pac-Man, um, you know, uh, 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 machine in, in my house that, that I, uh, I compete for scores against, against my kids with, but <laughs> like Ms. Pac-Man is just such, first of all, it's a, a brilliant story on how, you know, it was basically a mod of Pac-Man, right? Like yeah. when it first did, the dev team did this unlicensed mod and then it became canon later. But what it is, it's it's just the purest and best version of Pac-Man. It's very interesting because it sort of did come out from a North American publisher and was released in North America before Japan, uh, almost like yeah. eight months before Japan. And it became this incredibly successful uh, arcade cabinet. And it sold like over 100,000 units, which was incredible for, a, you know, a big hefty arcade machine. Yeah. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, it, it mixed up things. Obviously, it has a slightly different character, but that's not what makes the game so great. It's like the four different mazes, right? Like, it, it mixes things up. Um, it has um, it has different behavioral patterns that make it a little bit more exciting to play. Like, there's some somewhat random movement to some of the ghosts. Um, you know, and it's, it's just... Uh, it's it's so perfect. Like it's just a game. I feel like I could play over and over and just get better and better at. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I love your original Pac-Man. I love super Pac-Man too, by the way, it's a game that few people know, um, where Pac-Man can get big and he can munch through these doors that are closed. But, uh, Miss Pac-Man is just, it's so good. So just before we move on from Miss Pac-Man, then was there many like arcade cabinets when you were growing up in Germany? Yeah, but they were in bars. So you know, when my dad went to to a bar, I I you know sometimes go with him. I don't think you were you were supposed to play him, uh, play the games until you're 18. Like you had to kind of sneakily do it. Um, there were there were some arcades as well. Uh, but, you know, I, I do think you had to be 18 to enter all of them because in Germany they permit um, games of uh, luck. So you, you have a lot of uh, slot machines were available even in bars. Um, but, yeah, I remember playing these. Um, and then, of course, at some amusement parks you would always find them too. Excellent. And, uh, you know, it was uh, I was mostly obsessed with Dig Dug, if you remember that one. Yeah. I <laughs> Loved Missile Command just because of the trackball controller, but then Ms. Pac-Man was just, you know, I, there was a machine in my hometown and I just couldn't stop playing it. Fantastic. Well, we're going we're gonna to start going through these games a little bit faster because you are a very busy man. So I want to hear your thoughts on the next game. Um, so we're going to listen to some music now and we're going to dive straight into the next game.
Okay, Pears, so the next game on your list today, I think is, is it your favorite game, maybe? Um, it's developed by Nintendo's R&D One, as well as Intelligent Systems in small part, directed by Yoshinio Sakamoto. It released for the Super Nintendo in Japan in March 1994. It's the sequel to Metroid 2. It's Super Metroid. Pear, please tell me about Super Metroid. Yes, and by the way, if you're hearing some noise in the background here, Liam, it's because uh, every first Friday of the month we have uh, people take a tour of IGN. We open our doors up and, and people come in. Um, and so, you know, this this first Friday falls on the 8th, ironically. <laughs> uh, and so we've got a group of people uh, outside this room that I'm in uh, touring and looking at a giant Witcher statue right now. Um, so Super Metroid, I mean, it, it's... You, you you said it's probably one of my favorites. It is it is not my favorite game of all time, but it's always in my top three, and I I reserve the right to change my opinion all the time. Like Link to the Past, Ocarina of Time, Super Metroid are pretty much the holy trinity um, of games for me, and you know certainly the pinnacle of of Nintendo development. Super Metroid is so freaking good because it's it's a more compressed game compared to the Zelda games, much shorter game. But it's also more stressful and it's more it's eerie and it's so cool. Like, I mean, think about like this this game took a page out of the book of the alien movies, obviously, right? Like Ridley Scott's a- Alien, you can see the influences everywhere. Yeah. Um, and its predecessor. But they basically make you revisit the station from you know the, the first game. You go back and it's all shut down and broken and like while we had seen this kind of stuff in, in movies before, that, that was a really unique take for a video game to really kind of cast you back in. And then you trigger something and, you know, like everything comes to life again. It's just like, I just loved the, the I just loved what, what they did and how they um, improved on the original, the giant bosses, right? Like you had bosses that were the size of the screen. They used mode seven effects for all sorts of cool stuff, like scanning through the walls that always yeah. blew my mind. When you do the scan beam and you find out that a, a wall is fake. Um, and then the control is absolutely perfect. Like to the point where, you know, there's an area where you have to figure out how to wall jump. Like the control is almost too perfect for the player. You know, it is accurate, but you know, there's no room for, for human error and you have to be really good at like, just kind of figuring out how to constantly, you know, um, constantly jump off the walls and get up there or how to do the, the spin attack and like propel yourself over, over lava and like, man, game's so good. Is this another game that you purchased originally while you were in Japan, or did you have, did you wait until North America at this point? I bought it in Japan. All of my Super Nintendo games I bought in Japan. Okay, except for some of the later ones, like Second Density Three. I think the you know Secret Secret of Mana yeah. Number Two, the that never came to the US. I bought that later, or some of the late Fire Emblems I got when I was already in the US. It's funny because Super Metroid actually saw, didn't sell very well in Japan itself, um, but yeah. its popularity came from the fact that it did so very well in North America and Europe. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a pity because like it, you know, the way it looks, it does look like um, more of a futuristic anime type take on you know sci-fi. It doesn't have yeah. that kind of like gritty look of a of a US or European developed title. 
Um, and it's, it's a pity it didn't do better in Japan. And honestly, I mean, the Metroid franchise has never done that amazingly well. Even, you know, the Metroid Primes you know, were emulating the, the first-person shooters of, of uh, you know, in, in the West. And even, even those games never had that level of mainstream success as a, you know, Half-Life, Halo, or Call of Duty, or Doom. Uh, which is a pity because it's so freaking brilliant. Yeah. Was this another case of playing Super Metroid first, then going back to the other Metroids, like you did with A Link to the Past, or you had you already played Metroid 1 or Metroid 2 before going into Super Metroid? With that one, I had played Metroid first, so that one was... I was familiar with that franchise. Ah. So, with Super Metroid being where it is now, and the Metroid Prime games being where they are now, and the most recent Metroid game going to be Federation Force, which some people dislike, some people are fine with. It's a very different take on what Metroid has been so far. What do you sort of see happening with Metroid, the series, going into, like, the NX next year? Yeah. I, look, I mean, I, I do think that franchise is coming back in a bigger way. It's, it's, it's a pity, you know, for all... Nintendo is really good at kind of managing their brands and their characters, and obviously we've seen Samus, um, you know in Smash Brothers and, you know, the, the character is not forgotten. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I do think we're going to see bigger things again. I just don't know that it's going to be from Retro Studios and in the Prime franchise, I do think we'll see a new take on it just like we did, um, you know, um, uh, on the Wii. I think, you know, there's room for a third-person or 2D Metroid um, game return. Excellent. Okay, so we're going to move into your next game now. So let's listen to some music from the next game and dive straight into it. Okay, Pear, so the next game on your list today is a racing game that is on an Xbox platform. It's the Xbox One title that was released from Turn 10. It's the sixth game in the mainline franchise. It's Forza Motorsport 6. Yeah. So, you know, you should know that that I love cars. I love car TV shows like Top Gear. Um, (laughs) You you tweet about your Tesla quite often, (laughs) I've noticed. I, you know, before my before the Model S, which is an amazing but very quiet car, I had an Audi S6, which was an amazing but very loud car. You know, it was a, a V10. Um, so I, I do I do love my uh, my fast uh, vehicles, and um, you know, I've always played racing games back. You know, to the early days of pole position and final lap and uh, 
you know, the Top Gear, uh, the original Top Gear games as well. Um, really love those, love those games. And so Gran Turismo was just heaven for me. I love those games. But I feel like Forza has overtaken that franchise in recent years. You know, I think there's still uh, time for a comeback for the Gran Turismo um, titles. I really like the driving model and the physics and that, that franchise. But Forza is really good. I love Horizon, which is the more arcade-based uh, franchise. It's kind of in the absence of a burnout. That's, uh, you know, that's my go-to for, for um, arcade racing. Uh, but Forza Motorsport 6 was just, first of all, a really beautiful game. We got, um, you know, weather effects, um, which were sorely missed in, in previous games. Um, but, you know, it's, it's all about the, like, the car models look so good. You get to explore them, you go up close, and it's just, this is one of those, those games that's like Pokemon to me, where I just want to catch them all, and I just want to collect them all. And, but <laughs> I haven't had the time to do that with Forza 6. You know, they've been so many Forzas over the years and I've, I've played, um, you know, I've been playing so many games that I've, I haven't been able to go as deep with number six as I have wanted with the others. And then, okay. you know, again, it's an online game. And so I can, I feel like, um, you can just get better and better either playing against the AI or against your friends. Do you like that sort of simulation type gameplay where it's very realistic and you know, you're not maybe drifting around corners as much as you would do in other games, but the realism and the feel of the cars is there. Yeah, I love the realism. I, you know, I, I hate it when cars don't feel right, like when you're driving them. Although I am, you know, I'm a, fee, I'm a fan of kind of relaxing the level of realism too. Like, you know, if you played a Need for Speed game, cars don't sound that good. I wish they did. You know, like they... EA has done a great job basically saying like, hey, man, this is Fast and the Furious. We're going we're, we're gonna to amp it up and make these cars sound absolutely crazy. I actually am a big fan of that. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't have to have the super, like, I don't have to be like an obsessed simulation gamer with the steering wheel. Uh, you know, it's kind of a pain in the butt to set up. I have a, I have a wheel, but I, I don't usually set it up. I don't have to play games um, with manual shifting and like, the you know guidelines off or anything like I, I like kind of like that medium feel of being able to relax but also you know getting to sweat a little bit excellent so we're going into the island then if you could have only one car to play in forza what car would it be Oh, that's just me, man. You can't. <laughs> this is an island of limitations. I want to know if you could only have one car in Forza, what car would it be? God, that's so mean. You know what? I'd probably <laughs> take a McLaren. I'd take a McLaren P1 or something. You know, something really nice. Um, you know, like I, I love classic cars too, but like you just you just want great performance. Some German efficiency. Uh, yeah, or, you know, like, I mean, if I wanted to go German, I'd go for an Audi R8 or something like that. Excellent. Well, we're going to move on to your next game, Pat. Unfortunately, we do have to sort of blast through these a bit quicker, and I want to hear Pat's thoughts on all of his games that he's chosen. So we're going to listen to some music from the next game and go into a very different game from what we've spoken, uh, from the genres we've spoken about so far. So let's listen to some music.
of the next game that you've chosen uh, for the island is a game that you could potentially play infinitely forever. Uh, it's a strategy game, a real-time science fiction strategy game that was released by Blizzard. It's the second game in the series and still an incredibly popular esports right now. It's StarCraft II Wings of Liberty. Pat, please tell me why you've chosen StarCraft II. Yeah, so... You, I mean, you basically said it. You can play this game infinitely. And I remember, you know, the original StarCraft. Um, I, I don't even know how many hours I've logged on that one. I played it with my friends uh, when I was here in the U.S. already. Uh, we just kept on just setting ourselves scenarios where we turned on AI, uh, you know, enemies and then worked together against them. Or we would square off with, you know, uh, four friends against each other. And... You know, before that, we played Warcraft, of course. Warcraft 2, amazing game as well. Yeah. Um, but StarCraft managed the impossible to give you this variety of, of troops. You know, the, the humans, the, the Protoss, and the Zerg. Somehow balance all that. And that variety, it's, it was so fascinating to master the three different races. You know, like with the Protoss, you have to construct these pylons to, to power your bases. With the Zerg, you're expanding this creep carpet. And then with the humans, you just got the coolest, you know, Cameron-inspired technology. You know, it was like uh, literally the guys from the alien, like the, the Marines from the Aliens movie, you know, <laughs> setting up the siege tanks and, you know, you're flying, flying their, little, uh, uh, their little spaceships around. It's just, you know, I love the world. Uh, Blizzard has made it. You know, they're so good at, at cutscenes to tell the story, but like ultimately it's just so many cool toys in that game. And I could play StarCraft 2 forever. Have you uh, played the expansion since since the release of the Legacy of the Void and Heart of the Swarm? So I've, I've started with Heart of the Swarm. I, I have to play, play way more um, on that one. Again, it's a time question, you know, like um, I have a family. Yeah. Um, you know, this game that you cannot play in your living room um, while your wife is hanging out and reading something. It's just like... <laughs> we need more additional pylons. What? <laughs> you basically... Exactly, basically and, and she'd go crazy. Just the, the, uh, the repeat lines on everything. Um, you have to deliberately... You have to get up and go to your computer and play it there. And so, yeah. you know... It, the opportunities are less and less for that to happen, uh, fewer for me. Um, but I gotta, um, I, I just want to go back. I like, I just thinking about it, it's such a good game. Is this something that uh, you played a lot of uh, over the time? So you got pretty good. You reckon back into it, maybe let everything sort of settle again and you'd be able to get back on the ladder to diamond and all <laughs> competitive. No, I suck. I suck at, I, I think I suck at StarCraft too because I, I, you know, again, like I said earlier, I, I like to take my time. And so when when I play competitive, competitively against somebody else who has, like, worked out their perfect build order, like, I, I will get smoked so quickly, right? Like, um, you know, I, I, I just enjoy, you know, building up the perfect base and then, you know, taking my time and then conquering the world. Um, but that said, like, if, if I only have eight games to play, I think I could get back into it, could get back it could get pretty good again that's good but you're gonna have to share the time between that game and what's the next game which is also a strategy game and a a huge time sink so we're gonna listen to some music from the next game and we're gonna talk about the penultimate game on your list as well (laughs) 
So, Pat, the second to last game on your list today is another strategy game. It's a 4X strategy game developed by the very famous Firaxis Games and Mr. Sid Meier. It's a game that released on uh, PC and OS for uh, Steam in September of 2010. It's Sid Meier's Civilization V. Pat, I can imagine this is another one that you could infinitely play forever. Yeah, Civ, Civ, all the Civ games are just so great. I, you know, I, <laughs> I love. I, I don't like. I'm always amazed, like how how the developers, how, how they construct a game like this and manage to balance it because there's just so much in it, right? Like, think about other games are so simple by comparison. It's like run from the left to the right and shoot the boss, and there's a blinking dot on the boss, and that's what you hit. Or you know, like there's a beginning and an end to a certain quest, and really you can deviate only slightly. This game, you know, you can go for a military victory, for an economic one. You can escape the, the planet, right? Um, you can you can have a tech victory. Um, and I just find it so fascinating. Like, it, it feels like every story unfolds differently. And one thing I actually did, you know, my, my kids are super spoiled, as you can imagine. Like, um, back the last generation, each one of them had a 360. We had an Xbox 360s, four in the house. Uh, on four TVs, <laughs> and we would play Civilization Revolution, you know, because the the interface is simplified. That was you know, a, my kids were that was, that was were a great younger. game. That was a great game. Yeah. I really enjoyed that game. And I bought it like I I had owned the the, the game for a while and, and liked it. And then with my kids, they were on sale for ten bucks. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna buy four copies. You know, I'm gonna buy the other three copies. We're just gonna start playing this. And I found I saw the genius of the game in that they 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 approached this daunting world um, and they quickly learned how it worked. And like, they quickly learned that they could succeed in different ways. You know, they could build up tanks and airplanes or they could, you know, really go for an economic victory and, and like surprise you with, with things that you didn't expect. And then, you know, the variety of, uh, of styles of play, you can pick the, the different, uh, you know, the different nations and, and, and leaders and, it's just this endless sandbox of exploration and setting yourself different uh, opponents uh, or playing with other humans, of course. It's also another game that, for a deserted island, it has an incredible amount of expansions now as well. Uh, I don't know how far you've got into those as well, considering your very limited time. This is a game that I think... A lot of people ask me as well, like, Liam, what would you choose? And I'm like, I've got no idea. I'm glad I'm the one asking the questions and not the one having to make the decision. But when I really think yep. about it, when I get to speak about Civilization V, this is definitely one of those games that I think is almost a solid... If I'm going to be stuck on a deserted island, I want a game that has almost seemingly infinite variety as well in the things that can happen. Because, as you said, the amount of things that are happening, Civilization V would have to be on that list for sure yeah if you add gods and kings you you know you, or, or brave new world if you add the add-on packs it, it gets even bigger you know as each of them it doesn't it doesn't add new missions like most other dlc it's like you get new new concepts like religion <laughs> new world, mankind renowned things <laughs> like religion or <laughs> tourism or all these in, in, incredible things that have happened in history <laughs> Yeah, it's a must. It's a must bring game for Desert Island. Are you, uh, just before we move on from five, then, are you excited for six? Yeah, I can't wait. Really, really excited to see this return. Excellent. Okay, so we're going to move on to your final game now. We're going to move on to the, 
a game that in itself it's been chosen once before for the deserted island by nina freeman of fulbright games um i'm very interested to hear what you have to say i think i know the reason as to why you've chosen it so let's listen to some music from the next game and let's go into the final game So, Pear, the final game that you'll be taking with you to the world of Super Mario is a game all about Super Mario and all about making Super Mario levels. Developed by Nintendo EAD team and produced by Takeshi Tezuka with help from people like Miyamoto. It's the side-scrolling platform video game creation system tool for the Wii U that is Super Mario Maker. Pear, please tell me why the final game on your list today is Super Mario Maker. Well, I mean, I, I think... You heard me talk at length about Super Mario World and how influential this game was for, you know, just getting me back into gaming and really like starting my career at IGN as well. And Super Mario Maker is is the, the closest thing to, to Super Mario World that offers new challenges, you know, in perpetuity. You know, it's a construction kit that lets you express your creativity, but it also lets you discover others creativity and like my first thing that i would probably do would be to try and recreate the entire super mario world because i wasn't allowed to bring it you made me you know <laughs> choose eight games so i would recreate that clever very except, clever yeah except the uh you know the colored blocks you can't do the same way so i'd have to uh, figure out some new solutions to some of the challenges the original designers um, solved for me um but no super mario maker like at its best it really shows you how clever some creators can be and how clever you can be. And the thing that I encountered with Super Mario Maker is that it takes a lot of time to make a truly great level. You yeah. have to not just design it and get what's in your head out there. And I've created a couple of levels. You know, you can you can find me on um, on there, um, and some of them were pretty popular. But like, then you let players play them and you observe what they do, and you go, oh man, I want to go back and change all of this. I didn't even think the, that players could do this. And like, I feel like when that's your Desert Island game, you finally have the time to sit down and, and create the perfect levels the way that Nintendo would have done it with lots of playtesting and improvements. It's also one of those things like, I don't know how you play Mario Maker. I find it extremely difficult not to make challenging levels. And yep. credit to Nintendo for being able to, for so many years, no matter how what people think of Mario and how Mario games have a very distinct formula and have been over the years, there is some absolute unique art to be able to create levels that feel exceptional when you play them, 
but are also very, very passable. Very easy after maybe one or two tries. And I think Mario Maker proved to people that all people want to do is create extremely ridiculously difficult levels that kill you instantly or have challenging leaps and jumps. How how have you been um, creating Mario Maker levels? Do you sort of have that urge to create some difficult levels too? Yeah, and that's. I think that's how everybody starts off. You you're just mean. You don't even put a uh, a question block with a mushroom <laughs> on the top. Do it, and you know. I I, I think then th- what what's lacking is the kind of the feedback mechanism that shows you the enjoyment of players, right? Like you, you can get, they can leave you a comment somewhere and tell you, oh man, this spot is mean and you see all the little X's where people died, but you don't get that sense of playing with a friend. And, you know, that's what, that's actually what taught me the most about level creation is to, to show friends at work here the levels and watch them play it. We did the series where we trolled each other in the very beginning, like the IGN Plays Mario Maker <clears throat> challenge, and I made a really difficult level and it drove Jose insane. <laughs> but then after that, I was like, you know what? Let me try something that, that dazzles in different ways where people will, people will feel you know, elated or people will feel a sense of discovery. I made one level that had changing seasons where you go through the, uh, the same stage four times but it's a different season, kind of like, you know, click clock uh, woods or, you know, like you have this you know, you, you think you know the level and then, you know, like I recreated the entire level, but now it's covered in snow and like, you know, the <laughs> frozen. so, you know, you can now just walk and skid over it. And so, and then you see the reactions from people saying, oh, that's clever. And they're having fun rather than just being, you know, frustrated or thrilled by something. I'm a little nervous, though, because I'm going to have to play through your levels because being trapped on a deserted island, I've not thought about this. You can spell out things with blocks. So you could be oh, like, yeah. SOS, please come to these coordinates in Super Mario World and find me. So I'm, uh, I'm I don't know. I, I think I wouldn't do that right away. I, I do want some peace and quiet and, and go deeper with all these games and replay them. So, But yeah, eventually it'd be a good way to get a message to people. But unfortunately, you would have to do a music level or auto-scrolling level because otherwise the kids don't seem to want to play anything else. That's true. But we've kind of gotten over that hump now. It's a lot more... Uh, I think the more stuff that got added to Mario Maker with the updates over time, I think... A, the, it weeded out the people who were maybe just making things rep- repetitiously like music levels to the real creators. And, All right. And I think I think what's going to be very strange, and I don't know how you feel about this, depending on what the NX is going to be and how we control it and how we interact with it, is Mario making this thing that potentially is going to be this thing that could be great for many, many years, but we're kind of going to lose with the NX coming in if they don't make an NX version? Absolutely not. I think Mario Maker will transition right over to the NX. I think, you know, if if it's not available at launch, basically, hey, the same game is now on NX and you can continue to create, um, you know, I think we'll see a version for it pretty quickly. They've created a beautiful template for this game, but there's still lots of room left. I mean, there are yeah. tile sets we haven't seen, like, you know, uh, like the US Mario Brothers 2 or the Game Boy games. Like, there are all these tile sets and items and things that haven't been explored that would make it fit for a special edition or a new release. And so I, I just feel like 
a game like that can be the foundation for a platform. Just like a game like Splatoon can be there at launch and be the foundation for a platform in that you interact with this event-based play, um, which is, of course, coming to end on the on the Wii U with the, the final Splatfest. Yeah, the final Splatfest. Well, I think it's about time we finish, as in a few hours' time, the Super Mario Maker SGDQ race is happening. Um, so I assume no one wants to miss that. So... We're going to wrap up today. Pear, just before I let you go, there is one last question I have to ask you. And it's the question I have to ask all my guests. And that's if you had the choice to take one console with you, uh, including the back catalogue, because everyone knows consoles are built on how strong their back catalogue is as well as their technology. If you could take one, barring PC, because you're not allowed to emulate games, if there's one console you could take with you, what would it be? The Super Nintendo Entertainment System. I thought so. <laughs> I thought so indeed. Pat, thank you so much for joining me today. I know your time is very limited. And I very much appreciate you coming on the show today to solidify your eight games in history. That will change now and again, depending on how you feel. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Leo. It's been that. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm going to let you go now, and I'm going to just ask you to let the people know where they can find you and what you what they should be checking out. Sure, you can. Uh, you know, you you, you can find um, all the goodness at ign.com, of course, and you know all the great work from the the folks who work for me. Um, you can find me on Twitter at pear ign and pear is spelled p e e r. Um, I use that that uh, handle liberally and everywhere, so I'm pretty easy to track uh, to to track down. But you know, if you like Nintendo, subscribe to our podcast it's called Nintendo Voice Chat. You can find it on iTunes, or you can search for it on YouTube, where we recently created a channel, so you can see the video version of it. Um, we're not exciting to look at; we're just sitting in a room. But uh, hopefully, we'll we put on a good show and good discussions for you. It's an excellent show, and I can highly recommend it. It's also one that I'm vying against on the iTunes charts a lot recently. I've see, I see Final Games sat next to uh, NVC quite a lot on the uh, UK charts, which is really, really exciting for, for me personally. <laughs> so, Per, thank you so much for joining me. And also, thank you for listening to Final Games. Uh, this has been the 24th episode. If you want to find out more about the show, you can find us on Twitter, Final Games Show. You can also find me at LiamBME. You can also email the show at Final finalgamespodcast at gmail.com so once again thank you so much to Pear for joining me it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on and I hope you'll all join me next time goodbye goodbye